Our sermon passage this morning is Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Amen. Thank you, Julie. You may be seated. Let's pray together. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the King of glory who reigns over all. All that was, is, and ever will be is yours. And you are a good and gracious King, robed in majesty and worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. To you we offer those things this morning, and we rejoice to celebrate you. We do not offer our worship to you lightly because it is an awesome and fearful thing to stand in your presence. And were it not for your invitation to it, we would not presume to do so because we also acknowledge that we are a deeply sinful people. And in our sin, Father, we are prone to wander. We are stiff-necked, slow to learn, and quick to forget you, your promises, what you have done for us, above all, that even when we were your enemies, even when we fought so hard against you, you sent your son, Jesus, into the world to save his people from their sin. And that is a blessing of incalculable worth. And even as we know that in him we have eternity to praise you for it, that does not seem like enough. Based on your word, then, we cast ourselves on your mercy. Plead for your forgiveness. And we ask for your help to live lives of repentance and holiness and trust of you. Especially before the eyes of a watching world, help us to live in such a way that others will see you in us. To love others, especially those who would consider us enemies as you have called us to love them to share the gospel with our lips and our lives, and to trust you no matter what this life and world may bring. Similarly, we pray for our denomination and all that was done at its annual meeting this week. We are grateful for the good that was done there. And we thank you for your kind, patient faithfulness to you, even as we grieve and lament the evil that has been revealed in recent weeks. We ask for healing and restoration and justice for those who have been wronged. And we ask for repentance and truth and light to shine on those who have done wrong or tried to hide it in the darkness. And we ask for your wisdom and for your help in going forward that we would conduct ourselves at all times in a way that is maximally honoring of and glorifying to you. 
And now as we open your word together, I pray that you would help me preach it to the glory of your name in grace and in truth. May every word that comes forth be yours. And please give us ears to hear it. Help us to not shy away when it speaks hard things into and about our lives, but help us to cling ever more tightly to it and to you. And where we fall short of you in any way, may we be the ones who are changed. And I pray for everyone who is here this morning. If there are any who do not know you, would you please save them? We are yours, Father. Make us whole and make us holy. It is as ever in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. It is good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Austin Shaver, and I am one of the pastors here. Our pastor, Jamie Mosley, is out of town this weekend. But if you've not already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 24. If you're new to Redeemer, if this is your first time with us or first time in a while, our typical approach to preaching is to work our way through a book of the Bible together. But there are occasions such as this one when we, we take a little break from that to focus on a particular theme. And as Jamie shared a couple of weeks ago, that's what we're doing this summer as we spend some time in the Psalms. Now, personally, I think we missed a golden opportunity to call this series the Summer of Psalms, but you spell summer P-S-U-M-M-E-R. Now, it's Father's Day. That means I get unlimited dad jokes, so just get ready. They're coming, uh, but now you know why I'm not in charge of these things. Uh, but that silliness aside, we are focusing on the Psalms and spending time here because perhaps more than any other single book of the Bible, they teach us how to pray. They teach us how to worship. They teach us how to approach the Lord. The book is often referred to as God's songbook, and so it is, and it covers an extraordinary breadth of history, running all the way from the times of Moses up until after the exile into Babylon, and it was written by many people. David, of course, wrote a bunch of them, but it was, many of them were written by others, and it's often in that little tiny print. Julie actually did read for us, but that we often skip when we're reading them, but, but despite that, or perhaps because of it, God has here composed a truly beautiful book that reflects, I think, an extraordinary range of the human experience and our relationship to and with him. But can I make a little confession? You know, what, what I've realized is, as much as I love to read, and I do, to this day, I just don't get poetry. I've tried. I really have, y'all. And it just, you English teachers out there, God bless you, but I just, it's just never clicked. And so because of that, the Psalms have always been a little intimidating to me. I come to this, I'm like, Am I missing it? Do I not understand? For some of you, that's not your problem. May the Lord be with you. But for those of you, maybe you feel the same way. I want to encourage you this morning. We're always dependent on the Lord, but let's especially trust the Holy Spirit to give us illumination and understanding into this book. So as you heard Julie read just now, we're continuing our series with Psalm 24 today. And before we jump into it, I think it is helpful to give ourselves some of the context in which this psalm was written because you see, commentators are largely agreed that this was written explicitly for a moment of corporate worship, most likely centered around when David brings the Ark of the Lord into Jerusalem and is seated on his throne there. And that story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we don't have time to go and look at it in its fullness, but for our purposes, it is important that we understand that this was an enormously momentous occasion in the life of Israel. What do I mean? Well, bringing the ark of the Lord 
which for them was synonymous with the presence of the Lord, into Jerusalem, along with David establishing his throne there, is in many, many ways the culmination and capstone of hundreds of years of God's promises to Israel. He had told them, I will make of Abraham a great nation. And he's done that. He told them, you will enter and you will take the promised land. And they have done that. He told them, I will place my anointed on the throne. And he's done that. And he said, I will be with you. And he is. It is nearly impossible to overstate what a moment of just riotous celebration this is, an unrestrained joy for God's people. In fact, when you read the story in 2 Samuel, David's rejoicing and dancing and celebrating before the Lord is done with such abandon that his wife, Michal, rebukes him. She, and, and to that he says, I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. Now, I am no Hebrew scholar. We have those who are, you can ask them, but I think this literally translates to, honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. I told you, dad jokes are just rolling this morning. They keep coming. But, but David is just losing his mind over what God has done here for his people. Have you ever had one of those moments? One of those moments in life where everything just clicks. It comes together, you see the Lord working, and everything is just going well. Those are really enjoyable moments, and, and we can and should celebrate them. I thought about demonstrating it, but I thought, well, last time I stood on a chair during my sermon, I probably shouldn't do that again. And I'm confident if I ran around up here, I would break all this stuff, because that's what happens when I get all excited and out of control. Like, things get broken. Um, silly moment like this. I was a freshman in high school, we defeat our crosstown rival in football. So if, like good students, we're going to storm the field, right? Now, I'm a freshman, so I'm cool. I'm going to be smooth and jump the fence instead of going 10 feet down to go through the gate. You know what happens? Shoelace wraps the pole, face plant right in front of the whole student body. It was amazing. I was very smooth, kids. You should want to be like me. But, <laughs> but that's what this psalm is. It's a storm the field psalm. But this is so, so important for us to get here. The the psalm attributes the victory to, and it places its confidence and grounds its celebration, not in the people, not in what they've done, but in God's character and God's actions. And we have to see that here because if we don't, then we're going to come away with this with a far too high view of ourselves and a far too low view of God. So we want to see what he has done here, the one who the psalm rightly praises as the king of glory. So my hope then for us this morning is that this psalm will be very good news because we too can ascribe victory to, we can place our confidence in and ground our celebration in the character and work of God. In fact, if you take nothing else away from our time today, then the whole point is simply this. Our triune God is the king of glory and we can place all of our hope in him because of who he is and what he has done. Let me say it again, our triune God is the king of glory and we can place all of our hope in him because of who he is and what he has done. Now to help us grasp that and to see it, there are tr three truths about and aspects of God that this Psalm reveals that I want us to explore together. And that brings us to our first point, God is creator. God is creator. Look again at verses one and two with me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
So the psalm begins with and grounds itself in the reality that not only does the earth belong to the Lord, which it does, so does everything in it and every one. And what is it that makes it his? Well, verse two tells us, it says, he is the one who made it. Uh, there was a guy named Abraham Kuyper. He was a famous Dutch theologian and prime minister in the early, early 1900s. And he famously captured this idea this way. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is God over all, does not cry, mine. And that's what he's getting at here is that everything is the Lord's. And that is a foundational reality with which we have to grapple. The fact that all that has ever existed does exist or ever will exist belongs to the Lord. Now, if you have grown up in or around the Christian church, that, that idea may seem impossibly basic to you, but it may be one of, if not the most hotly contested truths that we proclaim today. The idea that there is a transcendent creator who has made everything and consequently that the universe is a created thing, that humans are created beings. People will fight tooth and nail to suppress and avoid and deny and run away from that reality. But I love how author Wendell Berry put it in his 2000 book, Life is a Miracle. He got it. He said, it is easy for me to imagine that the next great division of the world will be between people who wish to live as creatures and people who wish to live as machines. And we're getting there. Why is that? Why is it that we fight so hard to accept that we are creatures, that we are created things. Well, we could spend months, if not years, wrestling with that, and there are people who have ably done so. But for our purposes this morning, I think that truth has two hugely important consequences that we need to wrestle with. What are they? First, if we are created by and we belong to the Lord, then we are not our own. Now, once again, one of the most deeply countercultural positions, especially in the West, that we can espouse today. Because in our cultural moment, the highest goal for humanity is that we would achieve this just completely atomized individualism, that a desire to live my truth, whatever that might be, with no constraints on me whatsoever except what I might put on myself. That's, that's the goal. But the problem is that runs directly counter to what Scripture tells us the reason for our existence, why we exist. And that contrast can be captured, I think, in two short statements. So first, go back to 1992. You've got Justice Anthony Kennedy sitting on the Supreme Court, and in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, he said this. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. So there's, there's one view, and I think that really captures a lot of this world's view. But here's another from 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, we can certainly debate the proper extent and contours of political liberty. That's fine. That's for another day. But as a theological argument concerning our reason for existing, those two things cannot both be true. Either we are free to define our own concept of existence and meaning, or we are the Lord's and we exist for the purpose he gives to us, which scripture says here is to glorify him. Those two things stand in direct opposition. And, and maybe that sounds great at, a, at some high theoretical academic level, but, but let's get very, very practical for a minute. Because this truth, this idea speaks directly to so many 
of our current cultural and political flashpoints. Now, lest I be accused of being a partisan, let me acknowledge, I'm about to grab hold of the third rail of every hot button issue we've got, so I'll see if I'm still standing in a minute. But let's see what happens when we think about these things in light of what Scripture tells us. Get ready, I'm about to hit all sides here. You see, this idea that we are created by God in his image and for his purposes, that's the framework. It speaks to things like the ongoing revelations of abuse and its cover-up that we're wrestling with in our own denomination right now. And it reminds us that the bodies of others, they're not our own. We don't get to use and discard them as we would please, but we're cre- they are created. We are created and precious in the sight of God. And scripture says, and we say to you that because that is true, if you have or you know someone who has been the victim of abuse, first you should inform law enforcement, but also and also you should know that you are invited and welcome to come and talk with us if you desire. We care for you and we love you and we are here for you and you do not have to walk through that alone. That's what this means for us. This truth also speaks to the issue of abortion with which we have grappled for so long in our country. And it reminds us that both the mom and the unborn child in those situations are not disposable, but are created and precious in the sight of God. Scripture says, and we say that because this is true, if you or someone you know is considering an abortion, then we want you to know there is a better way And we want to walk with you and help you find out how to choose life and not death. And it also says that if you or someone you know has sought and obtained an abortion, it doesn't have to be the end. The blood and grace of Jesus are sufficient to cover this sin. And there is hope in his name. And we care for, and we love you, and we are here for you, and you are not alone. No matter what anyone else has ever told you, we're not going to leave you. And this truth, this word of God says and speaks to the issue of race with which we've grappled for even longer in our country. And it reminds us that whatever the color of someone's skin, that person is created and precious in the sight of God and of great value. And it says, and we say that because that is true, when others speak or act as though you are lesser because of your color, they are wrong. And we are here for you and we love you we care for you, and you are not alone. And this truth, this word from the Lord, it speaks to the whole range of goodness, the, the transgender issues that have blown up in these last few years. And it reminds us again that every single person is created and precious in the sight of God, and that every single person is a created and embodied person. And that, that is a good gift from the Lord. And our bodies are not disposable malleable things to be done with whatever we please, but are a part of his good creation. And if these kinds of issues, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. But if it's gender dysphoria or anything in that realm are something with which you or someone you know are struggling, please know that we care for you and we love you and we are here for you and you are not alone. And as long as you are here, you never will be. And friends, I could keep going, but I've been intentionally repetitive in how I have framed these issues because here's the reality. The secular world on both the left and the right, in your case, the left and the right, they build their pieties on castles in air. 
There's nothing underneath their truth claims except a raw will to power. But, but for us as believers, the truth of the whole counsel of Scripture from creation to the coming of Christ and his work on the cross to his ascension and his return and the new creation to come shapes or should shape everything, everything about how we live in and understand this world and especially how we understand one another. And it is shaped first by the fact that we are every one of us created beings, specifically created in the image of God. That changes everything. And I know it feels like I have really belabored this point, and I have on purpose, because we have to recognize that if the Lord tarries his coming and refuses or chooses not to directly intervene, then we are going to find ourselves less and less at home in this world. And that shouldn't surprise us. Scripture tells us that's going to be the case. But as that happens, particularly in areas and places of life where maybe before we felt pretty comfortable, then we want Redeemer. We want this congregation to be a place of refuge for you. And here's the, here's the truth. We are never going to soften our approach toward the word and toward sin. We're never going to soften our approach toward calling you to repentance and to Christ. We're never gonna stop pointing you and everyone that walks through these doors toward Jesus and toward his gospel. But neither will we ever, ever give up on you. Whatever you're going through, you keep coming. And we're gonna keep being here. We're gonna keep coming to you because we love you. We are now and we will forever face these things together. Because God's word is true and that will not change. Now I recognize that was a really long subpoint, and I promise we're gonna pick up the pace from here. But I told you there are two consequences to the reality that God is creator. The second one is that because God is the creator of all things, he not only defines the purpose of our lives, he also does so for his creation and our place in it. And we don't have time for a full-orbed exploration of creation care here, but there's one passage in particular that I think speaks to what this psalmist is getting at here. How do I know that? Well, because he quotes this passage, uh, excuse me, because the passage quotes this verse, which seems helpful. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is in the midst of an extended discussion about how idols and how new Christians should handle living in a culture where certain foods, particularly meat, have been offered to idols in worship. And in verses 25 and 26 there, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. From this psalm. And then after elaborating further, Paul goes on and concludes his argument in verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So similarly to the purpose of our bodies and our lives, one of the purposes of creation is to be enjoyed to God's glory. Now, I recognize that doing or using something for God's glory is one of those fuzzy church terms that we all get really comfortable with, but don't always think about what does that mean? And it is, it's an enormous concept with which we should wrestle all the time. But at minimum this morning, at the bare minimum, it reminds us that as we've already heard, our bodies, our lives, and all creation are not our own, but they belong to the Lord. So we should therefore steward them with care as though it belongs to him because it does. So friends, because these things are true, then we can and we should join with the psalmist in singing praise to the creator who not only gives us life, but gives us the very purpose of life. Now, don't miss that. That's good value for your time this morning. You've got to hear the whole purpose of existence. That's pretty great right here. But knowing and being given the purpose of existence, meaning the universe, the mystery of human life, 
That's no small gift. And the giver of it is worthy of great praise from us. And if the psalm ended here, that would be enough. It would be a good day. But he goes on, and that brings us to our second point. God is holy. God is holy. So God is creator. We've seen that he established the earth and everything in it belongs to him. Now the psalmist turns to asking an interesting pair of questions. Look at verse three. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Now don't rush past this because this is an important point. The holy God who created everything is about to tell us who can stand in his presence and how. And I don't, about, don't know about you, but I want to know the answer to that question. That seems very important. What does he say? Well, look at verse four. It says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. Now, this is a real command. And that should inspire humility of us. Hear it again. Who can stand before the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Well, that'll speak to our current moment. The idea here is that only the holy may enter God's presence. Where do I get that idea? Well, this will take a couple of steps, but follow me and consider the progression. So the psalmist asks, who can stand in the Lord's holy place? And he says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, consider that Jesus in Matthew 5 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then in Hebrews 12, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's the chain. Who can enter God's presence? Only those with a pure heart, who Jesus says are the people who will see God and who Hebrews says must be holy if you want to see God. So we learn here that the holy are the ones who can stand in God's presence. And that might cause us to despair because if we are even remotely familiar with our own sinfulness, we will recognize, oh, we, we are not holy. What do we do? What, how, how do we respond to this? Well, look at verse five. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now that's very interesting because you see the original audience of this Psalm would have known the same thing we do. What is that? That if it is the holy who can enter God's presence, then we're in trouble because we are far, far, far from it. But what does it say? It says that God gives righteousness to his people, to those whom he will save. Now, we have one thing that the original audience didn't have. We have the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would tell us. We know what God has done to give his people his righteousness. We know that, as Romans 1 tells us, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. We know as Romans 3 goes on to tell us, that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. Because God put him forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith and to show his righteousness. And we know, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that it was for our sake that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I know I just unloaded like every $5 theological word in one paragraph, I get it. But, but what is all of that saying? What, what does that whole chain show us? It shows us that yes, only the righteous may enter God's presence, but he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. Friends, that is the most amazing thing I will say today. If you hear nothing else, hear that. 
Because when we as Redeemer Church say that we exist to proclaim Christ as we do on that giant red banner, that's what we mean. We mean and we want to show you that just as the psalmist has laid out here, there is a holy creating God who has made everything that is, including you, including me, including everything that you will ever see, and he invites the holy into his presence. But again, we are not holy. We are sinful. But rather than rejecting and discarding us as he could have done, instead he sent his son Jesus, who lived the perfect life in our place, who died a sinner's death on a cross, bore the Lord's wrath that we deserved, raised to life again, ascended to the Father, and will come back to judge the living and the dead and bring his people into a new creation forever and forever. And that is the offer that we extend to you today and every day. If you do not yet know and love and believe in Jesus, we invite you to him. And I can say with full certainty that any of our our elders, our staff, pretty much anybody in here would love nothing more than talk talk to you about that. God is holy. He makes the way for us to be the same. What a beautiful thing to be able to sing and to celebrate the psalmist this morning. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can ascend the hill of the Lord. We can stand in his holy place. Not in our own strength, not in our own holiness, not in our own righteousness, but in the perfect blood-bought holiness and righteousness of Jesus. Friends, I told you this is a storm the field psalm. Again, not ever because of us, but because of what he has done. And that brings us to our final point. God is victorious. God is victorious. As we come to the end of the psalm, again, remember our context. This is a psalm of corporate worship, of corporate celebration, of victory in the Lord. Theologian John Collins said that verses seven through 10 may have been a sung as a call and response in front of the gates of Jerusalem as they see the Lord victorious and place Place yourself there, hundreds of years of slavery and desert wandering and fighting battles and conquering and, and all these things of just endless strife and uncertainty has led to this moment. They are taking Jerusalem. The ark is coming. David is on his throne. And what do they say? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This is a moment And isn't that an interesting phrase, that the king of glory may come in and open these gates? I think we get a little bit more in Psalm 118 to understand even better what's happening here. You don't have to turn there. But verses 19 to 22 say, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So we continue to see this theme that the righteous may come in and we praise him because he's become our salvation to do so. But here's one final amazing connection. That last phrase there, the builders rejecting the cornerstone. You know who talked about that? Jesus, all over the gospels. And he said, that's about me. That's referring to me. So with that knowledge then, we know the true fullness of the answer to the question in verses eight and 10. Who is this king of glory? Yes, it is the Lord strong and mighty. Yes, it is the Lord mighty in battle. Yes, it is the Lord, the Lord of hosts. But once again, we have the rest of the story. 
We have Revelation 5 where we see this being sung in the throne room of heaven. Then I looked and I heard round the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and glory and might forever and ever. And what does that mean for us? It means that whatever sin is in your life, that sin that you feel like you will never shake, that feels like it has haunted your steps forever, it means that in Jesus, it will one day be taken away forever. It means that whatever hurt or grief or sorrow or despair you have in your life, no matter how deep and inescapable it seems in Jesus, it will one day be turned into joy forevermore. It means that whatever injustice and oppression and darkness and evil you have experienced or seen around you in Jesus, it will one day be made right when the sun will reign unchallenged and darkness will be no more. And that does not excuse us from working for and pursuing repentance and healing and justice now. That's what we talked about earlier. But it means that the ultimate victory is the Lord's, that the King of glory has come and the King of glory will come again. So this morning, as we hear the song being sung in Psalm 24, let us praise the God who is the creator of all things. Let us praise the God who is holy and yet has made a way for us to stand in his presence. And let us praise the God who is and will ultimately be, be victorious in all things. But let's also realize this song is just an echo of the one that will sound in eternity from the throne of God, almost as if in final answer to the psalmist's question, who is the king of glory? It's the lamb who was slain who is worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory. His name is Jesus. Praise God. Let's pray together. You are the king of glory. And even as you have revealed yourself to us as creator, as the holy one, as the reigning and victorious one, we cannot even begin to fathom the depths and the wonder of who you are. Father, we thank you. thank you for what you have shown. We eagerly long for more. And I continue to pray for everyone who is here today. Everyone who will hear these words, that you would drive them deeply, deeply into our hearts. they would take solid root there and bear so much fruit in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. We are amazed by you. And it is in your name, by your Spirit's power we pray. Amen.